Good morning again. Thank you for doing the Calvary Crunch. I see we're still doing it over here, getting getting some other people in. Um, I bet I'm not the only one in January doing a calorie crunch uh, as well. You know, post post December uh, next Christmas, I will not eat any of those things. And then it comes around, you're like, yes, it's all back. You know, so uh, good to see all of you. Um, yeah, please make room for those that are coming in, and those of you online, welcome as well. Good to see you this morning. As Mark mentioned, we had a great first service. Um, God really blessed. We had a 19-year-old young man give his life to Christ in the 8.30 service. Yeah. At 19, I wouldn't even have gone to an 8.30 service, so... Um, uh, I wish I could give you more details on that. You can talk to Joni. It's it may it, it's it's got future potential video worthiness. Uh, it was pretty awesome in the first service. We hope and pray and believe God will do a work in this second service as well, and I, and I believe He will. And um, just a couple of quick things uh, before we get into back into the Book of Acts this morning. Uh, if you weren't here last week. Last Sunday, uh, if you're out of town, if you're still sick, you didn't catch the service, we did ordain uh, Pastor Zach, and so he is fully on board now. Uh, Yep. And, um, you know, it's been a blessing already. Uh, Just this past week, for example, uh, you know, I have... A lot of things that the Lord has me doing, not only preparing for this study, but already getting ready for the study in Joshua and other. But others, God, God is, there's people God wants me ministering to. I do uh, want to forever disciple people. I don't care, no matter what God, I want to personally be discipling people. And there's things, but uh, like this past week, you know, I was able to send Pastor Trevor and Zach to a hospital visit that. 45 minutes away. I couldn't get there. I'd had to stop what I was doing, and they were able to go there and do that. Uh, we have a young man that gets saved this morning, needs to be discipled. I don't have the time to disciple all these individual people that God wants us to disciple. And so uh, we're, we've got, and many of you have full time jobs. You don't have the time to disciple, or you could say, well, if I could, then I'd have to like leave my job or whatever else. And so we, you know, these two men are going to be really instrumental in us discipling people, because we're not called to just get converts, to make disciples, and it's a lot of work, and actually pouring into the ministries, and so uh, so thank you for your support, it's a big step of faith, a uh, big step of faith for Lee and Zach coming back off the mission field after 12 years in India, and um, it's a big step of faith for us, but we believe that even this morning, this young man coming to Christ, God's saying, you're on the right track. These are first fruits, and we uh, we look at them and say, all right, Lord, you know what you're doing, and so what it all means, we'll find out in the months ahead. I pray, pray that we see a lot of other people come to Jesus, but uh, and in a couple weeks, I didn't want to do this in the holidays, but uh, in a couple weeks, I do want to take, uh, they have a baby on the way, uh, a due date of February 1st, and um, uh, then, you know, they just, for years, you guys were in India, no cars, they, they've had get a new car, and they got to get uh, things that you know, they, uh, maybe even baby supplies you thought you'd never need again. Now you need again, and so all of that stuff. I do want to take a love offering for them in a couple of weeks, so just wanted to throw that out there um, and, and help in some way. I didn't want to do it around the holidays um, because I know everybody's focused on uh, those things, uh, but uh, even if you only have a little, it, a little by a lot of people goes a long way, so 
Uh, they're not asking for that. I'm doing that on their behalf. They're probably not even comfortable with me saying it, but I'm saying it anyway. So <laughs> in a couple of weeks, we will do that. So, uh, and then in February, uh, after the baby's born, Zach's going to share one Sunday about how God spoke to them and how he used uh, myself and Pastor Trevor and some of you and bringing all, some of you in this room were part of uh, how God moved to bring this to pass. So he'll be sharing, but we want to make sure the baby comes so we're not kind of in conflict with that. Um, and so that in February, we'll do that. And then this coming Wednesday, uh, we every Wednesday in the month of uh, January, as well as the, the first Wednesday of every month, so all the way into the first Wednesday of February as well, uh, we're just praying in the new year. Uh, this past Wednesday was great. We had as many people this past Wednesday as we do at the 8.30 service, so it was really a great turnout for prayer. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a fantastic night of God just bringing people out to pray, and uh, the prayer time was sweet. Each time we've been doing something different, we prayed. Uh, this past Wednesday, we prayed in a focus prayer, um, Jesus, I love you because, Jesus, I believe in you because, and Jesus, I serve you because, and it really opened up the floodgates of people praying. Uh, this Wednesday, we'll do something special and different as well, and I can't tell you, you got to come out. If you want to know what it is. And I, I mean that. It is going to be special. Um, and I believe God's going to use it throughout uh, this coming year and beyond. So, um, you know, I know for some of you that you just can't come Wednesdays. Maybe you a medical profession or you're a truck driver. Or you can't come Wednesdays. You know, just pray with us in spirit. I wish you were. Not on next Sunday. I'll share what we did. But if you're able to come, make even a special effort to come. Uh, even if you don't normally uh, come come one out this Wednesday, God, uh, I believe, will really bless the prayer time. And I believe in the prayer time this past Wednesday contributed to this 19-year-old man showing up here this morning. I have no, because we prayed specifically for souls and things, and so uh, it's the Lord. So we, uh, come on out Wednesday. And then, uh, speaking of prayer, we want to continue to be praying for our own nation. Uh, I love this nation. I love this messed up nation we live in. <laughs> I love nations that I've never been to. I mean, because God so loved the world. So I, I and I, ever, as a kid, even as a little kid, I loved maps. I loved studying places that I'd never been. Kids, we had these things called encyclopedias. Um, my grandparents had them, and they had National Geographics and stuff like that. And I would devour that kind of stuff. And, like, I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. But, I mean, I love the world. And, uh, you know, we're so glad to be a missions-minded church and reaching the nations. But I also, I love this country we're born in, but it's a messed-up country. How many of you love your messed-up families, right? You, you say, my family's really jacked up, and, you know, and I love them anyway. You should have seen us at Christmas. Our country is a mess. Half the country doesn't like half the country. We've got all kinds of things that will only be exacerbated by people that are trying to pit people against each other in the political realm and everything else. But we've got a lot of sins, we've got a lot of idolatry, immorality, uh, we've lost our way, and so we've been praying. And God, uh, he can bring a 19-year-old kid back, he can bring a 99-year-old person back. And so we're, we're praying for revival. And we'll pray for the nation of New Zealand, uh, way down there in the southern hemisphere, halfway around the world. Uh, Javon was in the first service. Javon got a chance to spend uh, several months, like three months there, serving um, uh, in New Zealand. On your knees, I know it's hard. If you're visiting, we do this. Uh, we have hymn books, but, but we do want to be a praying church. If you're able to get on your knees for about 30 seconds of silence, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. If you can't, or you, 
doctor said, hey, now you don't do that. Just sit right there and pray with us, and uh, we'll get into God's Word. Father, we acknowledge you are so holy, so worthy. Lord, we are so unholy and so unworthy, but by the blood of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't see us, you see Christ who represents us in his perfection. We come humbly and yet boldly into the throne room of your grace and your mercy and to the mercy seat. And Lord, we ask, Lord, for mercy for ourselves in this room. Lord, we know that it's only been 14 days in January and we've already failed you many times. And yet you have picked us back up many times. You have cleansed us and renewed us. You have dusted us off. Lord, you have put us back on our feet, back on our knees. And Lord, we pray that we would desire a closer walk with you in this new year, in this room. Lord, we ask that you'd wash us and cleanse us of all of our iniquities, the ones we can see, the ones we don't even see. Because we have blind spots that you can see, and yet you love us by your matchless love. And Lord, we pray that you'd wash and purify your church, your bride, each individual person here this morning. As Mark already prayed, if there's one that doesn't know you, today would be the day they came to know you. We thank you so much for the first service, that young 19-year-old man who came to you. What a miracle it was. And Lord, we pray that you would do more. We pray that you'd bring many to Jesus this year. We have family members, maybe we just saw a few weeks ago, we're still praying for, and neighbors that we've been communicating with, and people that we work with or know that we're praying for. We pray this is the year that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray for many prodigals to come home. We pray for our country, Lord, that is, in a, is running from you, Lord, uh, is in deep bondage of many sins and immorality. And Lord, think that there's no judgment to come, and there is. Lord, we pray that you would remind them that there is a date in eternity, Lord, where everyone will have to meet you face to face, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And Lord, we pray that you would use the power of the gospel, you'd bring revival in the churches, Lord, you'd waken up lukewarm believers, Lord, Pastors that don't preach the word would turn back to the word. There'd be repentance in pulpits and pew in this country. And Lord, from the highest offices to people that have no power and position, they would come to a place of turning to you. We pray for the nation of New Zealand halfway around the world. Lord, you love the people there, uh, the native islanders that are there, the people that live there all up and down the many islands that make up that island nation. Lord, we pray that they would see a work of revival. We thank you for the the strong churches that you've planted in New Zealand. Lord, we pray that they also would see revival. And Lord, we pray also, lastly, for our persecuted brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, Iran, India, Nigeria, all around the world, Lord, that you would comfort them, rescue them, heal them, bring them back to their families, and Lord, even save the people that are persecuting them, as we'll see even this morning in our study. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How's everybody's knees? 
good. I told you guys a couple of years ago, I mean, I'm, a, I'm way younger than some of you, and I'm way older than some of you. It just depends, all relative. But and several years ago, my knees were way worse than they are now. I turned 55 in a couple of weeks, and I started getting on my knees to pray, and lo and behold, I think it contributed to God. It got me back into running. My knees are better now than they were 10 years. I really mean that. Like, they don't get as sore and everything else. God's like, trust me on this. You know, he'll give you guidance what to do. All right, Acts chapter 9, turn with me. We're getting back into uh, our study in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. And we'll pick up with where we left off. We read, verse, we read through verse 20, and we're going to reread verse 20 again this morning and through verse 31. Acts chapter 9, starting verse 20, immediately he, he being Saul, preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. But Saul increased more and more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched uh, the gates day and night to kill him. Very dedicated. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And who can blame them, right? And did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he, saw, how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Let's pray again. Father, we just open your word now, your word that is living, that is powerful. Lord, we pray that it would speak to every heart, those watching online, those sitting in the sanctuary, those out in the fellowship hall. Lord, we pray that you, uh, the same Holy Spirit who spoke through Luke to write these words, the same Holy Spirit who brought uh, Lord, the power uh, in the church and on the apostles, Lord, would, would empower this service, Lord, that you'd speak through me uh, by your spirit. And Lord, I'd receive your strength, your anointing, and your help. And each and every one of us, myself included, would have soft hearts and listening ears ready to apply what you have us to hear. If we've heard it a hundred times, Lord, may it be fresh and new this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Saul had left Jerusalem on a mission, and he had permission from the high priest. I'm kind of going back reviewing because it's been a month since we've been in this text, but uh, he had permission from the high priest to travel to Damascus, which was some 130 miles northeast of Jerusalem, which is a six-day journey by foot, and he was sent there to find, to arrest, and to bring back to Jerusalem any followers of Jesus. Saul's ambition, his dedication, 
to what he thought was service to God was off the charts. His zeal, as he later stated in uh, Galatians chapter 1, far exceeded his peers. He was far more zealous for the law than they were. But his trip to Damascus, it did not go as planned, did it? God had other plans. In fact, he had an eternal plan for Saul and for the church. As we're still learning from it, here this morning, 2,000 years later, of what God did in the life of this man, whose sole focus was to eradicate the early church. That was his laser focus, to get rid of the church. Saul was determined to bury the church, and yet God was determined to use Saul to build up the church. How's that for a complete upheaval of one man's ambition? But it would require a miracle. And by the way, every one of us who have been saved, it's a miracle. Amen? Amen. Because our nature is completely opposed. We're born opposed to God. But it would take a miracle to turn this man around. And as Luke records here in Acts chapter 9, and as we looked at four weeks ago in verses 1 through 20, God did indeed perform a miracle interrupting Saul's journey. It was Jesus himself who stopped Saul in his tracks. As I mentioned back in early December, Saul's conversion is recorded three times in the book of Acts. Saul's testimony, and he's later known by his Gentile name, Paul. It's the most documented testimony of coming to Christ in the entire New Testament. But as Saul journeyed to Damascus, he had almost arrived when a blinding light drops into the ground. You ever been driving? Today we have a really sunny day, but not a cloud in the sky. You ever driving? Um, you're driving to work. If, if you're coming to Hall Street, you're moving east. The sun is rising, and all of a sudden you'll come around a bend, and the sun hits you, and you're glad that there wasn't a car within like five feet of you because all of a sudden you can't see anything. I mean, you just get you've seen the sun many times, and yet it blinds you all over again like you've never seen it before. And they're like, where's the, where's the drop-down thing? You know, where's the, what do they call it? The visor. Where is that? You're trying to block it. Your sunglasses don't do it. It's just blinding. But this blinding light that was way brighter than the sun drops him to the ground. And he hears a voice speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And although... Saul instantly knew it was the voice of the Lord. He, no one told him. He instantly knew that was the Lord's voice. He didn't know it was Jesus' voice. Who, of course, Jesus is the Lord in the oneness of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the Lord, but Saul didn't recognize Jesus that way. But he knew it was the Lord's voice because he said, Who are you, Lord? And then Jesus responded. Jesus like, I'm going to teach you a little bit about the Trinity here. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus tells Saul to arise, go into the city of Damascus, and then once you get there, you'll be told what to do. Don't you love when God just tells you to do something, and later he'll tell you what? <laughs> uh, you know, we 
talked about this in the first service. Abraham got this. Go to the land I'm going to show you. Where is it? Just go. You'll know when you start moving. But Saul arose. He had now become completely blind. Couldn't see a thing. The men who were with him, they heard the voice. But unlike Saul, they couldn't understand the voice. They heard, we don't know if they're hearing thunder, a voice, a language. And obviously, God, Jesus spoke to him in the Hebrew language. Some of them didn't speak Hebrew. But they couldn't understand the voice for whatever reason. They had seen the bright light, and yet they weren't blinded by it. Only Saul was blinded by the light. So Saul could hear it, they couldn't hear it. Saul was blinded, yet they weren't blind. By the way, God, this is not a hard thing for God to do. He could shine a bright light in here, and some of you can be blind, and some not, and God can choose whatever he wants. But Saul was then led into the city. He was blind and without food or drink for three days. Then God gives a vision to a man named Ananias who despite his own fear of Saul, Ananias is like, Lord, you want me to go to the, this guy's here to kill us. But despite his fears, he goes by faith to Saul, and then he lays his hands on Saul. Saul came there to lay his hands on them, not in a good way, right? <laughs> and as he lays his hands on Saul, he regains his sight. It says something like scales falls off of his eyes, He's immediately filled with the Holy Spirit, much like the day of Pentecost, where everybody got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit at the same moment. And either at that moment, or there's debate about this, or when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, some think he was saved on the road to Damascus, some think he's saved right at this very moment. We'll find out for certain when we get to heaven. But we know at least by this moment, Saul is born again at least by this moment, when the hands are laid, if not prior, he's converted from death to life. From not believing in Jesus to trusting in Jesus. Saul's conversion, I think you would all agree, was a once-in-history type of testimony. Have you ever met anyone with Saul's testimony? I was walking to Petersburg... And I was blinded by a light. I didn't get hit on I-95 as I was walking to Petersburg or whatever it may be. But you've never heard a testimony like Saul's. It was unique. Jesus came to him personally. The other 11 apostles had walked with him for three years. But it was a once in all of history, a very unique and supernatural way in which God brought Saul to the Savior. But his life immediately after was equally astounding. Especially to the body of Christ there in Damascus that couldn't fathom that this man was actually now believing in the same Jesus they had put their faith and trust in. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Upside Down, The Amazing Aftermath of Saul's Conversion. Look back with me at verse 20. and uh, We did cover verse 20 uh, to a certain degree back in early December, but it's kind of a, a bridge verse for us, and so will verse 31 be. We're going to cover verse 31 today and cover it actually a little more in detail next Sunday when we finish out the chapter. But in verse 20, it says, immediately he, Saul, preached 
the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Immediately after Saul, if you go back and read the previous verses and by way of review, remember Saul, he hadn't eaten, so they, they gave him some food. They gave him some drink. He was re-strengthened. Then he spent uh, several days with some of the disciples there in Damascus. And after he had some food, some drink, some fellowship, some discussion, no doubt uh, he knew the Old Testament scriptures and he had questions, but he also probably um, had you know, some things he wanted to share with them. But then he goes to the local synagogue and he preaches. Now, Saul was a very learned man in the Hebrew Scriptures, prior to his conversion, he no doubt had the capacity to preach and to teach about the law of Moses. He no doubt would have been very open to preaching against Christ and against the church. But here, he rises in the synagogue, just days from his salvation, and he preaches Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. There was a custom in the synagogue that any Jewish man could get up and preach or teach from the Scriptures. That would make today's service much longer. <laughs> Me, then you, then you, then you, then you. Every man that feels like, hey, I, got, I, I, I have a verse too. I have a passage. I, and so the service would go as long as another man wanted to come up and say, the Lord gave me this verse to share. Now, I think they probably spaced it out most times. And, it, you know, and some wise like, you just go next, next week. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> you can go next week. But Saul took the opportunity. And he gets up there, and he opens the scriptures, and he begins. Remember, they, only, they didn't have a New Testament then. They had Genesis through Malachi. And so he preaches from the scriptures. Maybe he chose Isaiah 53. Maybe he chose Psalm 23, Psalm 22. There's many places that he could have chosen. But he gets up and he preaches that Jesus is the Christ. And I would agree that not everybody from the earliest days of their salvation is called to jump into a pulpit and preach. But everyone is called to tell others what Christ has done for them. Amen? Everyone's called to tell, hey, this is what happened to me. Pick up the phone, send an email. This is what happened. And Saul does that. He's called and he's led by the Spirit to tell what Jesus has done, but he's also called here to go and preach to his Jewish brethren in the Damascus synagogues. These are his Jewish brethren. Look at verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the one uh, he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem, and he has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. All who heard Saul were amazed as he opened up the scriptures, and they're thinking, all right, he's going to give us the law of Moses. But they're amazed. Whether, apparently, whether they were believers or non-believers, everyone's amazed. Pretty much everyone that was in Damascus was well aware of Saul's reputation. He had built a name for himself as the one who destroyed Christians. The word destroyed also means overthrew, overthrew them. He destroyed those that called on the name of Jesus. And it was common knowledge 
among the people of Damascus that Saul had come there to arrest and to bring back in chains any Jews that he found that were believing in Jesus, worshiping Jesus, believing that he was the Messiah. He had full authority to arrest them. He had an entourage of soldiers with him. So this was stunning to everyone. This would be like one of the ayatollahs in Iran. There's 12 ayatollahs and a council there in Iran. Be like one of the ayatollahs in Iran suddenly professing Jesus as Lord and Savior, all of a sudden loving Christians and having a heart for peace with Israel and the Jewish people. That is not the case with the current ayatollahs in Iran. They're persecuting Christians. They want to wipe Israel off the map. It would take a complete change. I have a pastor friend down in North Carolina, you know, that um, was in the mafia before he got saved. I have pastors that I know, some of the ones in Southern California, that are former gang members. They still have some of the gang insignia tattoos that are on their arms from when they were in gangs. And, and these are mighty men of God now. They're, they're completely different. The, the one pastor friend that was in the mafia, they put a hit out on him. You know, so uh, my point is, when people change, you're going to know it. And this is what Jesus does to a heart. It's a supernatural change when someone like Saul, who is openly against God, comes to faith. It's a little more obvious. Hey, there's something has happened here. Something dramatic. It looks like this complete upside-down reversal of what was visible just days earlier. In Saul's case, from persecuting to preaching Jesus in a matter of days. From hating the church to loving the church. From blaspheming Christ to proclaiming Christ. And yet, it looks like the same man physically. If you looked at Saul, you wouldn't see a different person. But on the inside, totally different. Amen? Totally different on the inside. Did Jesus do that in you? Has he done that for you? Have you been born again by his grace and by his forgiveness? Have you been made new on the inside? Saul, later Paul, would write in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's up on the screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New tastes, new desires, new life coming from you, from inside of you. Look at Saul. If Saul rose up there and he's in the synagogue and he's got the scrolls open and he's preaching that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, Saul's body hasn't changed. His height, he's the same height. When I got saved, I didn't add an inch. As much as I wanted to be 6'4", that didn't happen. <laughs> For years I dreamed. I was a point guard in high school. I wanted to be 6'4". I could have reached other goals. But Saul's, his height stayed the same. His eye color stayed the same. If his ears were big or small, they stayed the same. His voice was the same. His DNA was the same. None of that changed when he came to Christ. 
but his soul was completely different. Amen? None of the rest changed. His soul had changed. Your soul is who you really are. Not your hair color. And some of you ladies have had 40 hair colors in your lifetime. So it <laughs> certainly can't be that. If you men have, I don't know. But, uh, but the, the body is just a shell for our soul, right? The body's a shell for our soul. And the older you get, the shell is not as good as it once was. And anyone who knew, but the good news is, many, lots of good news, but uh, anyone new in Jesus, someday we're going to get a new shell, a new body. Your eyes, you don't need glasses ever again. Uh, you don't need contacts, all that. We're going to get a new body, but in this lifetime, we get the new soul now. Saul was a totally different man. That's why they were amazed. And so am I. Uh, and, and if you've been saved, so are you. Ever since June 1995, by the way, my hair has, it's a lot more gray now than it was then, but you're transformed on the inside. Ever since 1995, totally different. Jesus transformed Saul. He did the same in me. He's done the same in many of you. Anyone in this room's been saved, you have been changed from the inside out. I've heard a number of your testimonies. In this room, we have several people. I could start having people. Pastor Trevor standing up in the back room. I, I, I knew him when he was unsaved. We didn't get him through transfer growth. He was a convert, came to Christ. That's how uh, he was brought into the faith, and then he decided to stay here. Not everyone does that, but thank you for staying, by the way. But uh, and thank the rest of you for staying. You, know, you, you have choices in life, and I, we appreciate that you're here. But I know many of your testimonies in this room, people that have come to Christ, I knew you before salvation, that you had no interest uh, in things of God whatsoever, you were involved in other things, your life was messed up, you come to Christ, you still look the same, but you don't look the same at the same time because there's something different in the spirit. And I've had the privilege of seeing many come to Christ here and um, it's just an amazing thing. Now, not everyone loves when you come to Christ, by the way. Can we get an amen on that? Yes. When I got saved in 95, Sarah and I got saved on the same day, altar call, uh, our former friends started to fall away. Not immediately. Some faster than others. Uh, but there it was in the mid-90s when we came to Christ, and uh, some just started disappearing from my life little by little, especially when I tell them what Jesus had done for me. Some of them weren't as excited as I hoped that they would be. And when I invite them to church, they did not want to go. But not everyone stayed resistant. I had two of my friends that we hung out with eventually came to Christ. One, several years later, he tracked me down before Facebook, by the way. I don't even know how he did it. Somehow he found me, and there was no Facebook social media to find me. Somehow he called me and said, you witnessed to me several years ago. I gave my life to Christ, and he goes, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. I mean, that was a great, when I got that call, I was ecstatic. My wife remembers when I got the call. Another friend of mine, uh, about a year and a half later, came to Christ at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. Today he's a pastor in Tennessee, you know, and he was not in the ministry then. He had a business that was doing really, really well. So 
You never know who you're praying for. They can be changed, but it not, might not happen when you, when you get saved. And when you get saved, they might not be all that excited about it. You have family members that aren't that excited about it. But they'll still notice that Charles Spurgeon had, to, had this to say. He said, another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. Because they'll ask you to go places where you say, I can't go there anymore. What do you mean you can't go there anymore? That, that, I have the light of Christ in me. I cannot hang out there anymore. Only God sees the heart. But people can see a changed life. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. How many of you can tell what an apple tree looks like? You, you don't need any help from anybody else. You, that, you never mistake it for pineapples. Pastor Jim Cimbala said this, he said, people pay attention when they see that God actually changes a person and sets them free. When a new Christian stands up and tells how God has revolutionized his or her life, no one dozes off. And that's true. They might take off, they might run off, they might go off on you, but they will likely not doze off. Not at all. And Saul found this out. They did not doze off when he got up to preach. They were listening. They were intent. But they weren't all in agreement either. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was proving it from the Scriptures. Saul, he already knew the Scriptures front and back. He just didn't know the author. Now he had the author living within him. Understand that salvation, quick note on salvation here. Understand that salvation is a permanent and eternal work. We pass, the scriptures say, from death into life. We don't go back and forth. I'm dead, now I'm alive, back to dead again, back to alive again, back to dead again, back to alive again, back to dead again, back to life. I can do this all day, right? You don't. Go back and forth, nonstop. Save one day, not saved. Save one day, not saved. But if you really are saved, God begins a whole new work in you. And then comes this work, it's called sanctification. It's a lifetime process of wringing you out of you. <laughs> which is really hard, and only God knows how to do it. But it's a lifetime process of wringing you out of you, Saul out of Saul, Tim out of Tim, whoever you are, and sanctification is that process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. And it's different lengths of time. The thief on the cross, his sanctification process is a matter of a couple of hours. And then he's in paradise with the Lord. For me, it's been 29 years since I've been saved. And so God continues to conform us to the image of Jesus, correct us, maturing us in our walk. It's a lifetime work. And Saul, very early, uh, he right out of the gate, begins to grow quite a bit. It says right uh, in the text, he increased more and more in strength. Right out of the gate, he was growing. Um, and one of the reasons that Saul begins to grow was his enthusiasm for sharing his faith. If you come to Christ, you have to tell other people. It's part of how you grow. You have to read the Word of God. You have to pray. And you have to tell people what Christ has done for you. It helps you to grow. You're never to keep it to yourself. We're called to be fruitful and multiply. But his enthusiasm for sharing his faith was one piece of it. Also, his willingness, and matter of fact, his desire to serve. God has not called anyone to sit on the bench. He's called everyone to serve in some capacity. 
and he had a willingness to serve, and so uh, he knew that God had given him a knowledge of the Scriptures, but now it was to use that knowledge to present Christ, not to prevent the work of Christ, which is what he was trying to do. And I was told this in the first service as well, Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India, and it was her observation, and I've, I've seen generally something similar. It was her observation that when people came to Christ, it seemed to her that it took most people that came to Christ about 10 years to start doing what they should have been doing from day one. That, In other words, when people get saved, they're excited at first, but then they drag their feet spiritually for quite a long time and say, somebody else will take care of that, somebody else will do that, I don't really need to share it just yet, I'm not quite ready for that. And God's like, no, I've wanted you to... Saul just jumped right in, and he grew because he wasn't waiting for the 10-year growth period. Now, God, God has much to do in you 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but we are called to get planted and start to grow. So don't wait 10 years. Don't wait 10 more months in 2024. We talked about this last week. A closer walk with Jesus starts today. Serve him now, and you're going to increase more, and your love for him will increase as you serve the Lord, and your love for him will increase as you serve and care others, care for others. Matter of fact, you start sharing your faith, you'll want to share your faith. And given that Saul is so newly saved, and this happens a lot too, and many of you probably can relate to this when you came to Christ, if you, if you came to Christ in a time where you had unsaved friends and we did all of our friends were unsaved and for a period of time i had an open door with my unsaved friends that was going to close rather quickly but for several months i still had this open door where they they don't know what to make of you at that point so you still get to share christ and yet the church immediately if the church is genuine receives you in as a brother and sister in christ and yet your friends that are not saved they'll still listen to you only for a short window generally and some people defy this and some you know, you can be atheist friends to listen to you for years and they, they defy the rules. But generally speaking, this seems to be the norm. And Saul had this same opportunity where the Jewish community was still willing to listen to him as a leader from Jerusalem. They didn't quite know what to make of his new faith. And the church accepted him because Ananias vouched for him all at the same time. And it says he was proving that this Jesus is the Christ, but not everyone liked his Arguments for the faith. Look at verses 23 through 25. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. At some point, those Jews that did not come to Christ, as Saul would teach in the synagogue there in Damascus, uh, uh, those that did not come to Christ really grew tired of Saul's new life and his new preaching. Some of them really got tired of it. Uh, there's debate as to whether the many days are three years later with Saul having gone to Arabia, which he mentions in Galatians chapter 1, or uh, for three years and then uh, then he comes back to Damascus, and the escape is... So the, the, the debate is whether the escape is after he'd already gone to Arabia for three years, or if he escapes and then goes to Arabia for three years. Does that make sense? Does he go to Arabia for three years, comes back, teaches some more, and then escapes, or does he escape and goes to Arabia for three years? Uh, and there is some debate about uh, that timeline. In Galatians 1, 17 through 18, this is what I'm referencing. He, Saul, Paul later 
goes by his Gentile name, Paul. But he says, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. What an what a amazing meeting where Peter and Paul finally meet up, spend 15 days together. Now they've been in heaven together for 2,000 years, but for a time there, Peter was on Paul's death list, and now they are together, right? Because Peter was one of the, one of the 12, whether well, the 11 at that time, other than Matthias was the 12th, but, uh, but how they are there together for 15 days. So we don't know definitively uh, if he escapes before Arabia or he comes back to Damascus after Arabia and escapes them. Either way, those in the Jewish community referencing the fact that people that were hearing him grew tired of his message. Either the way, the Jewish community that resisted the gospel, not those that came to faith, obviously those that came to faith are, are becoming new, new members of the body, but those that resisted the gospel just had saw himself had resisted the gospel for years. It took Jesus coming to him personally on the road to Damascus. But they came to the same conclusion that Saul had come to prior to his Damascus road experience, and they decided this. Saul must be silenced by force. That was their conclusion. He's going to keep preaching this, this message of faith in Christ, so he must be silenced exactly what they try to do with Jesus. They killed Jesus. Of course, Jesus rises from the dead three days later. You can't silence Jesus. You can't silence the gospel. Now, I doubt that Saul was surprised about any of this. Do you think Saul was surprised by this? No, he knows their inner workings. He was the inside guy of the inside guys. He knows exactly how they think. Uh, he knows the religious establishment. He knows their hatred for the gospel as well as anyone. That's why he had letters and permission to imprison and kill believers. So he would not have been surprised that those he used to work with, matter of fact, he outranked them, now said, then he must be killed. I told you about my friend who was in the mafia. As soon as he came to Christ, now he's got to be offed, right? It wasn't like, by the way, God intervened in all that. He's still alive, by the way, and still teaching and preaching. But, and so was Saul. But I don't think he was surprised, but I do think he was grieved by their resistance because he was hoping that all of them would come to faith, and certainly some did. But he becomes aware of the plot, and the disciples, they help him escape. Isn't it great when you see, uh, if you've read like uh, Brother Andrew or different people around the world that have helped other believers escape, uh, you know, would-be Nazis or communist China. And, and, and to these brothers and sisters there, uh, they help him escape. They uh, lower him down on the outside wall of the city of Damascus through a basket. Uh, and this will be the first time, at least that we know of, this is the first one that Luke records, but the first of numerous times that Saul is going to barely escape with his life. It's going to happen many, many times. He has no idea how often this is going to be his story. But in Jerusalem, um, get to verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And they did not believe he was a disciple. Um, we're not positive, again, if this is Saul's first trip to Jerusalem or his second trip to Jerusalem. And there is a debate on the timeline if this is his first or second trip there. Uh, he says in Galatians, the first time he went to Jerusalem, he says, after, which was, he says is also after Arabia, 
that he met only Peter, and he stayed with him for 15 days. Uh, but he also said Peter introduced him to James, and that's all the apostles that he mentioned uh, that he mentions there. Uh, but this can still fit if the other apostles, which are plural in verse 27, because two can be plural, so it could be two or it could be a different time. Uh, but in Jerusalem, where when he does finally get to Jerusalem, uh, Saul had, that's the place he had terrorized the most. Jerusalem was where he was the most prominent. That's where he lived. That's where he put way more people in jail. He terrorized Jerusalem more than any other place. And the disciples in there, they were simply afraid of him. The, the church did not believe, uh, they did not believe he was now a disciple. I believe they probably thought it was a trap. You know, if, if a high-ranking uh, head of the secret police in North Korea comes to a group of North Korean believers and says, I want to preach Jesus to you, they're going to be suspicious that this is a trap to have them all killed, right? So the, the church was, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't believe him at first, and then you have verse 27, but Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and he preached boldly in Damascus the name of Jesus. Thank God for men and believers like Barnabas. This is the second time in the book of Acts that Barnabas is mentioned. Uh, you'll recall the first time he's mentioned, uh, he had just sold his land, and he sold his entire fortune, and he gave all of it, not some of it, he gave all of it by faith to the apostles and to the church, which was an incredible sacrificial gift, an incredible gift of love, an incredible immense step of faith on Barnabas's part that helped the apostles, it helped the early church, because they were not getting help from anybody else. And Barnabas had done that, and here, by the same kind of faith that he had and the same love he had for the Lord and the same love he has for people, he trusts that Jesus had changed Saul when others did not believe. And I don't know, Barnabas, God gives some people the gift of discernment. You guys understand that spiritual gift. Uh, I just could see Barnabas walking up and looking into his eyes and saying, you really are changed. He's safe, guys. <laughs> And, and, and Barnabas would carry some weight because here's a man who some of them, the fact they had actually survived at all was his financial gift. He'd give it, so he's, like, he's safe, he's not going to kill us, and by the way, I already gave everything, so if he kills me, I'm fine. You know, he could actually say that with some level of sincerity, but he could tell at some level, and he by faith believes that he had been changed when others were reluctant to believe that. Now, back in Damascus, um, God used Ananias in the same way. Ananias vouched for Saul when everybody else was afraid of him. Ananias fought through his faith, goes and lays hands on him. So in Jerusalem, God uses Barnabas. In Damascus, he uses Ananias. And that tells me that God wants you and I to bridge and put people together. We, we had talked about this young man that got saved this morning. We need those that are in the Lord to introduce him to other people his age bracket and pe to help him grow. And those of you that you meet someone new here, help introduce them to people. Not near as hard as this situation, so it's not an easy task comparatively, but uh, we need to be those that welcome and introduce 
the new believers to other believers so they, uh, they get in fellowship. And, and Saul himself, as much as God had done in him, he still needs fellowship himself. And Barnabas' name, as you know, means son of encouragement. He was there to encourage Saul, but also to encourage the entire church. Look at verse 28. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And now the latter part of verse 27 uh, tells how Saul retells the miracle of his conversion to the apostles and to the church, uh, and no doubt that they are uh, blown away by his testimony. Uh, but they begin to then receive him into the body. He's going in, he's coming out, they're having meals together, they're sharing time together. Verse 29, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. So in verse 29, Saul begins to have the same dialogue with the Hellenists that Stephen was having before he was uh, stoned to death. Um, if you recall, the Hellenists, they are Jewish, but they're Greek-speaking or Greek culture or both, Greek culture and Greek-speaking Jews that did not grow up in Judea or Galilee, for example. They grew up in other parts of the Roman Empire, not just the Roman Empire, but, but predominantly. And they had come to Jerusalem, and they still had their Greek kind of fashion, culture, language, whatever it was, and, but yet they became very, very devoted to the law of Moses and to Judaism. And... and as best we can tell, like the synagogue of the freedmen, remember those guys? They came from other places. They were more zealous that the law be kept exact than some of the Jews that grew up in Jerusalem. So these Hellenists were the ones that wanted to battle royale with Saul, even though Saul was like, guys, I was a Pharisee. You used to report to me, you know, some of you. And he's trying to explain to them and dialogue with them. Uh, but after a while, they decide they... They want to attempt to, they do attempt to kill him, and somehow that fails. Uh, they come to the same conclusion that those in Damascus, now this is the second time that he escapes death, they come to the same conclusion, we can't silence him, nor can we prove him wrong, same as they came with Stephen. Remember, they couldn't prove Stephen wrong, so they said, we'll just kill him. That'll take care of that. And uh, they attempt that, but somehow... God intervenes, and then we have verse 30. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Uh, like Damascus, God uses the brothers uh, there in the church to help Saul escape because they, they've tried once, they're going to try again. So they bring him to Caesarea, which is up, um, uh, up on the Mediterranean, and then ultimately he probably takes a ship from Caesarea up to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is the city of his birth. That's where he's from. When you come to Christ, inevitably, at some point, God brings you back to your family, and you have your first Thanksgiving post-salvation, or your first Fourth of July with the family post-salvation, or your first Christmas. And you'll remember when you first tell people that have no idea what Jesus has done for you, Oh, that's really nice to hear. Uh, does anyone want stuffing? You know, that kind of thing. You know, so um, he's going to go back to the city of his birth, and he's, as best we can tell, he will spend the next 8 to 12 years in Tarsus, where he grew up, and that will be his opportunity probably for anyone that grew up around him to find out what has taken place in his life. And he's not seen from or heard of 
in the church at large in Jerusalem or anywhere for the next 8 to 12 years. We don't know if exactly. Somewhere in an 8-12 year period, he stays in Tarsus. And God is going to form him there. He already did the three years in Arabia, which we believe was with Jesus personally. And then he's going to be formed more in his walk up there in Tarsus where he grew up as a child for the next 8 to 12 years. All that final verse, verse 31. Then the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So Judea is the south, Samaria is in the middle, Galilee is the northern part of Israel, had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Isn't that beautiful? Prior to verse 31, all the persecution, all the chaos that Saul was responsible for. Saul, the whole reason from the time Stephen was murdered, Saul began to wreak havoc on the church. The whole thing that everyone was running from was this guy. No wonder they were afraid of him. He had stirred up. It goes all the way back to the death of Stephen. But as soon as Saul gets saved and converted in Damascus, everything starts to calm down. The high priest doesn't have another Saul. He has others that are are with him in mindset, but they don't have his zeal and his desire to go and in prison and, and, and enslave, uh, but Saul did. And it appears that as he leaves Jerusalem uh, to go to Tarsus, that an even greater kind of sigh of relief, uh, there's a greater peace and a rest for the church, not because Saul isn't one of them now, for whatever reason, God just says, all right, you're going to go off next 8 to 12 years, I'm going to do a work in you up in Tarsus. But the church could all of a sudden, no one replaced Saul in the high priest, um, you know, kind of that group, no one replaced him that was actually persecuting the church. And so God began to give the church there in Judea and Galilee, Samaria, a time of peace. They were edified. They were walking, and the fear of the Lord, they were comforted by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but when they received this new season of peace, which was radically different than they, they had, many had fled the city, many were scared for their life, they don't take this new peace for granted. They're at peace, but it says they're being edified, which means that they're still teaching the Scripture, discipling one another. It says they're walking in the fear of the Lord. You realize that a lot, a lot of times... When people get a time of peace, they become very lukewarm. That doesn't take place here. Isn't that great to know? What if God brought the revival we're praying for? Would we immediately go back to lukewarm within three years or three months? They don't take it for granted. No, in obedience, they continue to serve Jesus. As they had done in persecution, they were now doing in peace. They have continued to serve Jesus. They're unified in Him. They're being edified in the Scriptures. Um, they take their newfound freedom and run to be in fellowship more, not say, well, now that we don't have to run from each other, hey, I'll see you in about three months. The Holy Spirit was comforting the church, but the Holy Spirit was also prompting another wave of souls and being multiplied. It says they were multiplied, the very last three words of the verse. Uh, another wave of souls being multiplied and coming to Christ. How much would I love, and I hope you would love, that this verse could be a testimony of 2024. That in the midst of the chaos of this country and around the world, that we would see peace and that we would be edified and that we would be walking 
in the fear of the Lord, not fear of God, the fear of the Lord, like His holiness, His majesty, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we would see not just this young man saved in the first service, but multiple people come into Christ. People not just here, but maybe your relative in other states come to Christ, even though they're not going to be part of this body, they'd be part of the body of Christ. And God can do it. Do you believe that? We've been praying that on Wednesday. I have lately, I have an expectancy, and I believe God can do it. He can turn things upside down. And prodigals that some of you guys are praying for, I believe you're going to see them come to know the Lord. And He can turn things upside down if we cling to Him. I want to close with this quote from Billy Graham. He said, speaking of just the, the, the men of the early church and speaking of men like Saul and Peter and Barnabas, he said, the men who followed him were unique in their generation. They turned the world upside down because their hearts had been turned right side up. And the world has never been the same. And in America today, if our hearts are turned right side up, we could see God turn things upside down and people that you never thought would come to faith could come to faith, would come to faith. But we have to be like the early church, walking in the fear of the Lord, being edified in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and that we would be living as new creations. Father, we bow before you now. Your word, uh, what you have expressed in uh, the life of Saul and, and uh, what you did there in the early church there in Jerusalem, as well as Damascus, Lord, we know that you can do the same today. And Lord, even the one soul that came to you this morning is a miracle, and we know that, uh, Lord, you desire for us to be edified. You desire for us to be at peace. You desire for us uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the fear of the Lord, and we desire that there be a multiplication of, of disciples making disciples. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that in this new year, you would do what we see in verse 31 in us. But, Lord, it would start with us being grateful for so great a salvation and obediently doing what you've asked us to do. As you said to Saul, just go and I'll show you what to do. And, Lord, you've already shown us what to do. We needed to take those steps. And as we go, you'll show us the next steps. And, Lord, all of us, that we would, with an enthusiasm, that we'd share what you've done with us with others, but we'd also be willing to serve in whatever, whatever capacity uh, you would allow us to, and it's a privilege to. And Lord, before we close and worship, if there's even one person as there was in the first service that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you'd speak to them now, even now prick their heart, and let them come to you to receive living water and the gift of salvation, the free gift that you purchased with your own blood. With our heads bowed before we close in worship, if there's even one person here, and there was one that I mentioned in the first service, there's even one person saying, I came today and I did not know Jesus. I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready for eternity. I don't know where I'd spend eternity, um, but I want to know him as my Lord and Savior. I want to be forgiven. I want to know that I have the assurance of eternal life and heaven, and I want to be changed. Like, like I saw Saul change there, the young man in his first service. He said, he said, I saw my life and what you were talking about that man. He didn't even know much about him. But if you're here this morning, you want to be completely transformed by Jesus and have the hope of heaven and eternity, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I can't make that decision for you. The person beside you can't make that decision for you. Only you can. If there's even one here this morning, um, 
would not want to give this message and not throw out the life preserver of an invitation. Is there even one person at all that says, I want to give my life to Jesus this morning. I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Anyone at all? If all of us know the Lord, I pray that we would be at peace because we're drawing closer to a closer walk with Jesus, being edified by him, walking in the fear of the Lord as we close in song. Uh, I don't know what song the worship team picked, but you can make it your prayer. I'm sure it will be something that will speak to where you're at and where God wants us to be. Why don't you stand as we close in worship?